Hey everyone, and welcome to a uh, somewhat impromptu and last-minute episode of the Banjoy Podcast Live. We're not going to take a whole lot of your time today, but uh, a lot of stuff's been happening in Afghanistan and Banjoy, and we kind of wanted to talk about it a little bit. Just Luke and I uh, offer some of our thoughts, and then uh, kind of address some of the things that have been going on. So, Luke, your backdrop's a little different. What, uh, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, so I am uh, in between housing situations right now. If anybody out there is trying to buy a house, you know the pain. I mean, it's pretty much that way coast to coast. And so we were crashing with my wife's parents for a little bit while we we're segueing back into an apartment because we couldn't get a house. So we're having to rent again at increased prices. Yay! Fun! Super exciting. Yeah. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, probably not a huge deal. Because no, <laughs> um, uh, the reason we, we, we weren't even really planning on doing a broadcast today, uh, we were planning on doing one next week uh but on july 4th the uh the dominoes started to fall in kandahar and specifically in panjway uh and we wanted to kind of have a chance to uh talk about it because just the way that we record the actual podcast it would have been weeks and weeks and weeks before a recorded podcast would have made it out so we wanted to make kind of like a timely episode and talk about it give you guys some thoughts to ask some questions in the chat or uh, offer some some thoughts in the chat and we could address. So we'll be on for an hour, so feel free to join us. Yeah, I think uh, the big reason that we wanted to hop on here is because we've gotten a lot of messages from a wide range of people about about Kandahar and about Panjoy falling. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's disheartening to hear. And actually, for the most part, it's not bothered me because I know a lot of people have been bothered by it. But this morning when I woke up, it was. Just, I was thinking about the Terps, and uh, you know, we got some messages from some guys that were pretty desperate to include a message about from a young man who uh, whose family was systematically being wiped out by the Taliban. So you know, it's it's a great danger that they take for for helping us out there. And you know, they would they go through measures to protect their identity, but it's basically impossible. And uh, so I just that really it was bothering me this morning that the Terps were getting put under the gun literally and uh, that we've, you know, we've basically turned our back on the Afghan people in a matter of a few weeks. We've gone from, you know, somewhat support to nothing. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not sure it's a legacy that will be remembered well. So that kind of, kind of bothered me a little bit this morning. Not so much the idea of the Taliban taking it back. Cause that's not a surprise, but the aftermath of that is disappointing, you know? Yeah. I think it's, it's, you know, going back to it not being super surprising, you know, you and I have had the benefit of seeing the signs of this coming for a while. You mm -hmm. know, the big offensive back in November when they see Sparwangar and they made a big push into Panjway. Um, we've been talking to locals that have said, hey, they're running the show. It's not official, but, you know, they're if as long as you're in the rural areas, the Taliban's in charge. So really taking the district center on uh, Sunday was just like a formality. Yeah. <clears throat> that we expected uh, to happen. What I don't think anybody really expected to happen was for it to kind of be the part of the domino of the very rapid cascade yeah, across the country. I mean, Panjway is Taliban homeland. We knew they were going to take it back. There should be no surprise. No one should be surprised about that. Um, but the fact that we're seeing, that as of four hours ago, Taliban fighting in the city, in Kandahar City, fighting block to block with the uh, Afghan forces, that's a little bit surprising. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it is, and it's uh, it's very bold on the Taliban's behalf 
to take these sweeping measures basically on the foot on the footstep or in the on the heels of American forces withdrawing. Um, and I think that it's interesting to see how they they I think they are politically savvy enough to understand that right now is the time to do it because in six, seven months, whatever, maybe somebody would be the American public or the political system that's, you know, running this country right now would be more willing to, you know, drop a few bombs or send some troops in or whatever. But the fact that they're doing it right now, that's fresh in the news. It's a PR move and it's a power move at the same time, you know. It's not a coincidence. It happened two days after our last aircraft departed. <clears throat> yeah. We, no. we no longer have aircraft in country capable of doing something about it. It's 100% on the Afghans. Mm-hmm. You know, a week ago, we probably still had the ability to do something. But yeah. now we know at this point, you know, all the Americans or wherever they are, I'm not 100% sure where they are. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the opportunity kind of striked. And uh, as it's kind of mentioned in the chat and Luke already alluded to, the people that are hurting most are the Afghan people. Um, and, you know, while I feel for all of them, and I definitely don't want any of them to you know be hurt or killed or watch the families killed, certainly not at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have a special kind of place in my heart for the interpreters because these are people that were out on patrol with us. You know, they, they stepped outside the wire. They not only risked their own life and limb just to be out in a combat zone for the dream of a life in America or Canada. Um, but, you know, they expose their families to that risk, to their identities being disclosed. And, you know, when we leave, you know, there are going to be police stations and intelligence agencies and government buildings. They're going to be ransacked like nobody's identity is going to be safe. And <clears throat> that we're waiting to the last minute to try to do these evacuation flights for interpreters, both on the American and Canadian side. It's, to me, it's atrocious. Yeah. Yeah. And, Somebody asked me the other day, why do you think, you know, why do you think they waited so Already long? Already was a, was a mar. And, and uh, nothing about that is the way we left is going to, is just going to make that gape, gaping wound even more severe. Um, Phillips brought up a good point in the chat. He said him and Tom Evans were, which both of them feature guest. Go check out their episodes, download them. <laughs> but he said, Evans and I were discussing how our behaviors towards terrorists will likely impact our ability to work with other countries in the future. That's a good point. You know, when we go to war again, let's say in a theoretical thing, we go to, you know, I don't know, Moldova to help fight off the Russians or something. They're going to see what happened in Afghanistan. But man, I don't know if I want to help these dudes out because they left them out to dry on the back end of that thing. So yeah, that's a good, that's a good observation, Phil. And somebody, somebody once asked me why it was probably last week. Someone asked me why did they think it took us so long to take action to to start getting the guys out? And honestly, it's because it's just it's the, it's not my problem. It's the next guy's problem. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> we we rotate through generals, we rotate through presidents, we rotate through Congress. You know, everyone's focused on right now. No one's trying to think about oh, what are we going to do with the interpreters? We'll worry about that later. We'll have time mm-hmm. to do that later. And now, now is now it's now. You know, within a matter of weeks, you're talking the Taliban could seize the entire telecommunications network in the, in, the, in Afghanistan. If they get all the phones and they get all the, the communications, it's done. We can't help anybody. Yeah. We have absolutely. no way to reach out. So the time is now. Yeah. And it's, it's safe to say that Pakistani ISI will be out there uh, helping them hijack those networks. And, sure. you know, it's going to be an extension of their intelligence capacity as well. And, <clears throat> you know, I think... Um, Sorry, I got a little bit of in my throat today. Uh, you know, we 
We don't. We don't. We avoid political conversations on the podcast a lot. We've remained apolitical. That's built that way on purpose, just mostly because Curtis and I disagree on some things. We agree on a lot, but we disagree on some others. But also just because it's not the focus of the podcast. But you know, and I think one of the issues that I have with how this is being handled by Biden and you know Biden's presidency, there's something good things will come out of it and bad, just like every other presidency. But I don't like the way that the administration has handled this withdrawal because it's felt it's a political pissing contest. You know, Trump was thumping his chest and saying, oh, we're going to get him out by the time I'm done. Well, that didn't pan out. And instead of a tactical withdrawal or a tactical withdrawal with implementing structural support for the people and continuing, because it's our baby. You know, we we made, we created this miasmic shit show that is Afghanistan. And we are the ones who should be held responsible for it. Um, we don't have to have, you know, 70,000 troops on the ground, but you can have 2,500 and a shitload of F-16s and Apache helicopters, you know, yeah. and uh, and a handful of secret squirrels out there running around dropping bombs, you know, and that's relatively speaking, it's not that costly. And yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we've been trying to do. But the, you know, this goes off way off the rabbit hole about the war in general is that. You know, we, we haven't really been fighting a war in Afghanistan for about 10 years. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we gave up trying to kill the Taliban a long time ago. We put so many, <laughs> rules, we put so many rules between, you know, people finding and people killing members of the Taliban that I can't in good faith say that our goal has been to win the war in Afghanistan for a while. Not since April of 2003. <laughs> Nobody gave a shit in Afghanistan starting in April of 2003, and we're, and we're seeing the cost of that now. Um, but just, you know, for those that are tuning in that haven't really been following the news super closely, and I can't blame you if you aren't, it's fucking depressing. I never watch it, man. You know, we've been reporting low key on the situation on the ground in Afghanistan for a while. Um, just that the Taliban had been making some inroads into the rural areas ever since last February. And the reason I say last February is that was when the Doha agreement was signed between the United States um, the Taliban and the Afghan government. And the essence of that agreement was we were going to pledge to be out by May 1st of this year. We didn't. Um, and in return, they were not going to engage American forces in the country, which they did actually abide by surprisingly. Yeah. Uh, the other agreement was they would not seize major population centers and they wouldn't seize district centers. So long war journal, the Afghan government, U S government, we consider district seized if they have seized the district headquarters. Mm -hmm. So you could seize the entire district, own every inch of land, but if you don't take that base, you have not seized the district. So once we started our withdrawal, coming on closer to this, Mm -hmm. now it's October 31st uh, deadline to be out, and our aircraft and our forces are leaving the country, and our ability to interject and protect these bases is removed and we've even said we're not going to fight to protect their damn bases we told yeah. them well of course now they're taking the district centers now they're taking major population centers now they're fighting in the streets of kandahar so while it seems very sudden this cascade of all these districts falling those districts fell months ago yeah <laughs> the only thing falling in those districts is the district headquarters building that kind of seals the deal and panjway fell uh, for us, the morning of Jan- uh, July 4th, for them, it was over the night between the 4th and the 5th in Afghanistan. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's just kind of the de facto uh, political game that that's pulling tug between the Taliban and the Afghan government all the time. You know, if you hope, and it, and for people, folks who weren't in Afghanistan, you know, or in Panjway, I don't, I can't speak at Afghanistan at large, but the district center is essentially it's it's nothing. It's like the size of a football field. And so if you're holding a district center, you're not holding anything other than a piece of ground with some HESCO barriers and walls around it. Uh, so it's a political gesture. So you can wave your flag above that and claim the area as yours. It's like, it's, they're almost like, uh, like frontier forts in the, in the American West in like the 19th century, you know, you had these little forts scattered along main routes and it was like, yeah, we own this territory now, but not really, man. You know, you venture out there over the hill and it's a different story. And it's, it's kind of a similar parallel um minus you know the onslaught of uh <laughs> the native americans but yeah. we didn't do the taliban like we did the <laughs> yeah. the, the indigenous folks here but i mean the uh conversation that follows all of this is well it was a waste of time right it was a waste <clears throat> of lives it was a waste of money it was a waste of effort mm-hmm. you know and a lot of guys you know i could see it i could see that they were really struggling like well fuck what the fuck was it even for what all those lives wasted and i you know we we again we've had the benefit of being able to see this coming and process it ahead of time and i think you and i are kind of on square ground on this one and just that Mm -hmm. you you can't look at it like that you know it's we we don't decide policy we don't decide the large grand scale these are politicians this is these aren't even military decisions that Mm -hmm. were being played out these are political decisions that are being played out both on our side yeah, from the American side, from the Canadian side, NATO, um, but you know, really, the Afghan people have a role in what's happening in their country right now. Yeah, you know, they they made decisions themselves that have set themselves up for these failures. Like it's not a hundred percent even just on the Americans. No, but it sure as shit isn't on you if you were <laughs> carrying your saw through Panjway in 2012. It just you are you you didn't affect this one way or the other. Yeah. You were there for each other. You were there to do your job. You were there to get home. You're there to get your other guys home. Do not take all of this yeah. as I mean, a, if you, your failure. It is not your failure. You, you, you failed when you got fired from Taco Bell and walked across the street to the Army recruiting office. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only failure you did. <laughs> there, there, there was a quote that somebody mentioned in one of the comments, and it was, uh, I won my war. Yeah. It's a nice you way know, of putting it. It you everyone fought their own war and you won your war. Don't list don't worry about the rest of this stuff. Is it sad? Yes. Is it tragic? Yes. Is it a waste? Objectively, yeah. Yeah. But it's not your fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's not your it's not your bird and the bear. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a waste for you. I mean, you can you know, I think if there's something I've always known, but the podcast is doing this podcast is certainly um, it expanded the depth of my awareness of, of this, but <clears throat> it's that I am eternally grateful for having gone to war. Now I have the privilege to say that because I don't have any holes in me. I'm not missing any legs, you know? And, you know, I, like we lost our, we lost our guys and it's heartbreaking and tragic, but I didn't lose any really close friends either. You know, everybody that I knew was, you know, I knew them, but I didn't know them intimately. Like, you know, say God forbid one of us had been killed or something like that. So I know that those effects way on people differently but i'm thankful for it because it's such a negative experience it's step it's steeped in negativity and brutality and difficult you know adversity all of those things that are associated with war but 
and the, in between little slivers of all the, sh- or in between all the clouds, all the all the shittiness of war, there's this little slivers of of positive. And you know, it's going to Afghanistan, stomping around Panjway, seeing the things we did, getting to do some of the stuff we did. It has been a largely a positive and reinforcing experience for me, a foundational experience. And so, you know, my challenge to some of the guys who are maybe having a hard time with this with this news coming out of it. Responsibility and to start finding the positive in that experience, um, you know, because it's there. You just got to dig down and find it. Yeah. We had a, a couple comments in the chat that I wanted to address. The first was from Mike. Uh, he says, uh, why didn't they put more focus in the horn? If it's the spiritual birthplace of the Taliban, a lot more focus should have been spent. And, and initially, Mike, I kind of had the same thought until we talked to Major Chris Persons a couple episodes ago. And what he basically explained to us is that, you know, the horn of Panjway is really significant to the Taliban, but it's not very significant to the Afghan government. There's nothing there that they need to hold in order to shore up their power. So it's a largely symbolic place for the Taliban. But the central government, it's it's just really not important to them. Whether that's uh, the correct way to look at it or not, that's why they didn't dedicate a whole lot. And they haven't dedicated a lot of resources to the Horn of Panjway for years. When yeah. I was in 2017, it was basically. <clears throat> I mean, that'd be like the Russians trying to take over Lynchburg, Virginia, because that's where Jerry Falwell's from. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's who gives a shit if you're trying to take, you know, strategically important place. Yeah. So and then another one was, how can we explain such bad morale the ANA obviously has? And I would say it actually it varies between the ANA units uh, as to where their morale is. Yeah. And we've had some good conversations and also some with some future guests about that. Uh, one thing is that there was a very misguided decision that had went back and forth throughout the war on in Afghanistan to not geographically. Uh, to not geographically line units. So the units that were serving in Panjway weren't from Panjway or even from Kandahar. They'd be from the north, like Mazar Sharif, or they'd be, you know, they would be ethnic Uzbeks instead of ethnic Pashto. And what in the mistake there was that these people weren't exactly motivated to fight for that area because they're not from that area. They have nothing invested. And in contrast, when I worked with the Coast Provincial Force and Coast, they were extremely well-trained, extremely well-funded, so that helps as well. Uh, but they, they were from there. They had a vested interest in defending their own territory. And they trained, and they took it very seriously, and they were really good fighters. Uh, so I think, I think part of that is that the central government, you know, the forces that are still loyal to them, they're not necessarily loyal to all these districts that they've been assigned to, so they're not putting up a huge fight. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the the analogy that we made in the podcast when we had this conversation was <clears throat> you know the the stretch that you have to take in the terms of imagination would be like if Latvia got invaded and a guy from a ranch in California got sent there to Latvia because you know because they look alike essentially or they or not even that you know the, the guy from California gets sent to Latvia to fight off you know the Swedish <laughs> It is. Culturally, it, that it's not really a stretch to say it that way. It's really not. Culturally speaking, there's that much difference between those areas. So the motivation for our California boy to go to Latvia and duke it out is not really there because he doesn't care. He has no stakes in that game. You know, it's not his neighborhood. It's not his people. 
And, you know, it's not, there's no shared national culture like there is here in the U S and like in Canada and, and a lot of the West really. Um, there, you don't have that national identity. People don't salute the flag. People, you know, here you go coast to coast, 3000 miles away. You're still going to see a sense of Americanism. And that's just a unique thing to the, to this country. Uh, but you know, that it's non-existent in Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, and you also, I wouldn't be too hard on the ANA. You know, they're, they're playing a hand that they, that they're dealt. Yeah. The central government <clears throat> giving them supplies. They're not giving them ammunition, not giving them food. They're not giving them water. You know, they can only be expected to fight for so long. Um, some of them are fighting to the death and there's certainly honor and, and distinction in that. And some of them are saying, Hey, why am I going to fight to the death for a government that can't even afford to ev- evac me or send me extra ammo? Yeah. That's why I've seen a lot of these bases that are being defeated without a shot. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, they've, they've been cut off essentially, you know, there's the, they, even if they, even if they wanted to fight, the infrastructure is not really there anymore for them to fight since we left. And since their, their government, you know, has kind of left them out to dry as well. So it's, you know, if our guy from California goes to Latvia, he's not going with the F-16 overhead and a full combat load. He's going with a pump action 870 and, you know, whatever he can get in his jeans pockets. <laughs> really weird analogy. <laughs> My analogy's going off the rails here. Really not, really not to it. Why, why are we invading Latvia with California surfer boys? I don't know, man. I don't know. I haven't thought through it that much, obviously. <laughs> uh, Colt had a he said it's pretty significant that the they're finally taking the Argon um, and you're right it is that's they've been on the cusp as I'm sure everyone wouldn't be surprised know the Taliban's always been there um, but the fact that they're emboldened to finally start taking these bases and taking these uh, district centers in the Argandab Valley so you're talking Maiwan, Zari, Argandab, um, Panjway, um, all of these districts it means that they're emboldened and they're ready to, to push on Kandahar is, is what is my takeaway is that we're, we're looking at the beginning of the formation of forces that are going to overrun Kandahar probably in the next month or so. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely coming. It's going to happen. And um, <clears throat> it'll be, it, you know, what's really interesting is what's going to be the future of Afghanistan. You know, obviously it'll be a tal- It'll be under Taliban rule again. I kind of wonder if the Taliban is going to be as receptive to Islamic extremist groups like they were before 9-11. Um, I'm going to guess probably, but you know, we, we might just be right back where we were on September 10th of 2011 and that the next Al Qaeda might be camping out in coast, you know, planning, planning an attack and they were going to have a haven there because um, the Taliban will allow it. And I, I, I suspect that, you know, it's going to be hitting a reset button in terms of, it it look like it did twenty years ago. Nothing really have changed other than a bunch of people have been killed. I'll I'll respectfully disagree. I think they're going to be less inclined to support foreign extremist groups, and the only reason I say that is because they're actively fighting against ISIS. Like the Taliban is fighting against ISIS in their own borders. Mm-hmm. One lesson that the Taliban learned from all this is that if they're going to be the out front and obvious, you know, overt leader of Afghanistan they're not going to be able to host those organizations because yeah. I mean if they're going to drive around in armored vehicles we're pretty good at dropping bombs on armored vehicles <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I think um, yeah I mean I agree that's kind of my impression because I think you know they, they got their they learned their lesson you know and, uh, and like you said I think I think eventually 
they'll want to be seen as a legitimate power in the eyes of the of the West and the eyes of the world at large. You know, it may not be one that we like, but it'll be, you know, it'll be one that's kind of there. And I think they want to play on a bigger scale than they were pre nine eleven. And if they start allowing, you know, extremists to set up shop in Afghanistan, obviously that's going to negate, you know, the world's perspective of the Taliban as a legitimate power. Right. And we've said all along that we we're going to play whack-a-mole with that in Afghanistan. We will continue to drop bombs in Afghanistan if it's against terrorism targets. Yeah. So Al-Qaeda, ISIS, any kind of organization like that that has more than just regional interests, we're, we're going to blow them up. Yeah. Um, and there's actually some comments in the chat that I'm going to let you address, Luke, based on uh, your background, talking about uh, what you think China's role is going to be going forward. <clears throat> So I think uh, now, obviously, I don't know this, but just from my years of study and traveling in China and talking with the right people, China's always been there, and they've been there while we were there. They and uh, I suspect that not probably not directly, but indirectly through ISI, they've supplied the Taliban with, um, you know, weapons, and we saw lots of Chinese-made weapons. Those little red motorbikes on and the Taliban use are all over the place in China, you know, <clears throat> and uh, so. I think that they've always been there. Uh, I think they've always worked against American interest in the country, but not in like a spy thriller novel way, but just in kind of like a low key, you know, soft extension of their presence. Now that we're pulling out, I mean, I could see, I could see China. Now this is a way crazy theory. If they could get through the little nubbin of where they border Afghanistan, I could see them pulling a move like the Russians and trying to get, down to uh, um, the Indian Ocean, and uh, is that why, 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 why is my geography shitty right now? Uh, it's not terrible. I mean, they'd have to take over Pakistan first, so that would be kind of an issue. <laughs> I mean, they'd have to. I think they would probably be smart enough to even bypass Pakistan, like just plow through Tajikistan and go down. Oh yeah, so you're saying yeah? I don't know. I don't know if that would ever happen or not. They'd go through Iran, maybe. No, nah, they're buddies with Iran. I don't know. I'm not no expert, but yeah, I, I don't think I don't think China has uh, conquering uh, aspirations in the area. I think they yeah. are. They've proven themselves at this point to be more yeah. diplomatic and economically. So I would. And that's that's what they'll do is they'll do the same thing they're doing in Africa. You know, they'll because they don't give a shit if it's Taliban or not. So they're going to invest money in the infrastructure. Um, you know, lithium mines are all over Afghanistan and that's going to be something that people are going to fight wars over in the future. So, you know, that's, but yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll have their presence probably more heavily felt now that we're leaving. I think they'll start funneling money. No, I I think you can expect to see a lot more overt uh, involvement of the Russians, the Chinese, uh, India, India is already highly invested in Afghanistan and they show no interest in pulling back that investment. Yeah, uh, and Pakistan as well. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the next couple of years pan out militarily, but politically, I think all of those groups are going to have they have it. They're suddenly they've been poking the bear for ten years trying to to get the result that's happening now. Yeah, I could see them being like, "Hey guys, let's stop fighting so we can make some money." Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I could definitely see that happening, man. Who knows? Uh, I do think that it's safe to say that. Unlike Vietnam, unlike Korea, in our lifetimes, we're not going to be going back to Afghanistan and touring Sparrowgar with our grandchildren. You know, I I, I would say uh, I would yeah, 
I would say you're right. I think it's pretty unlikely that we're going to have that opportunity. Um, but hey, you know, you never know. Who would have thought we would have been at war for 20 years to begin with? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who would have ever anticipated that? And a lot can happen. And I mean, the Taliban theoretically are relatively new. You know, 1994, 1993, they took over the country. Yeah, and they only got a short seven years. I mean, yeah, you know, they, they've been insurgents more than they've been the guys in charge. So. Yeah. And the guys that were in charge in 1994 are pretty much all dead now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not even really the same organization. They're going they're, to they're have to reprove themselves as a, as a governing body. Uh, yeah. And I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. Really. I, mean, don't. I, I don't. I'd be shocked if it, is, if it is as extreme. I mean, obviously, they'll be subjected to Sharia law and all that stuff. But um, I doubt it will be. As extreme as it was before, uh, it'll be as brutal, yeah. but that brutality will be thinly veiled for the world stage. Um, I mean, they've, they've proven that. I mean, there was a video two days ago, mm-hmm. the Taliban videoed them executing 10 surrendering A&A. soldiers. Just they were surrendering. I mean, and in the past, they've been allowing them to surrender. So these guys probably were surrendering under the, the, the notion that, hey, they, they let us go. They let our buddies go last week from this other base. We're good to go. And they're like, not today. We got the cameras rolling. Yeah. 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 They'll be just, as, I mean, they'll be brutal. They'll just try to hide it, but they won't be as good at hiding it as say China. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to, to theoretically go back. But if you look at Kabul in the fifties and the sixties, you know, before the Russians invaded, very Kabul was a pretty interesting place, very progressive place. You know, women were going to college and working and wearing jeans, you know, and uh, that's that would have been when my grandparents would have been in college too. So maybe one day when uh, my you know great kid, uh, grandkids or great grandkids are college age, maybe Afghanistan will be a place you can go back to. But I'm not going to get my hopes up. Yeah. I mean, hey, and if it does, I mean, it's a beautiful country. They have a lot of history. There's a lot of really cool things to see there. Yeah. Um, you know, it really could be a wonderful place to visit if they can sort something uh, out. But one of the guys. Oh, what's up? No, go ahead. I was just saying, um, Burl had a neighbor who backpacked through Afghanistan in the 60s. Yeah. And he was talking about how he just showed up and started humping gear, just walking around. And he, he spent like a month just walking through Afghanistan. Uh, and that's to me, that was mind boggling, but you know, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, people still do it. I mean, all through the war on terror, how many times do people get captured on the border with Iran, <laughs> Afghanistan or Iran and Iraq or in the yeah. Afghanistan, Pakistan border, you know, like, hey, I want to go hiking through some of these mountains. It's like, you know, they're really pretty, but you can get the same effect in Colorado, I promise you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, much more yeah. enjoyable. You go back down for a slushy and, you know. <laughs> yeah. Get you a craft beer. Yeah. So for the future of Panjway, you know, which is obviously this is the Panjway podcast. That's true. Um, for now. For teaser. Now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't know what do you, what do you see moving forward for the people of Panjway? I mean, is I mean is this is this their future? Is the is the is the present their future? I think so. Yeah, I think that they'll be living under the iron rule of F, of the Taliban. Um, you know, the thing that consistently breaks my heart. This I've said this basically from the first podcast, and it's come up a lot. But the girls, man, like the the girls of Panjway, 
And, you know, you'd see these, these beautiful young girls and, you know, no matter how, what all the horrendous things that they were subjected to and that they saw and that they, uh, everything else is all more or less for moot because their life is not improved. Now their life will be back to what it was and they're, they're doomed to a life of indentured servanthood, you know, not even indentured because there's no outcome. You know, that it's, I would even, you know, this might be a controversial thing to say, but I would even say a life of slavery essentially. Um, and you know, that's, uh, the people of, of Panjoy, that's their future. Yeah, you know, I really do. And I have to agree because I don't think anyone's going to be motivated to retake Panjoy anytime yeah. in the near future. No. You know, even if the government gets their shit together and they reconsolidate in Kabul and they're like, hey, we're going to retake our, our country back, Panjoy is going to be the last place that they go. It's yeah. just there's nothing strategic for them. There's no production there the population is heavily heavily against them mm-hmm. that's it's probably the last place that they would you know maybe then some of the places in the kunar would be the last places that they would try to to take back i don't i don't think you're going to see anybody fighting for panjway's freedom anytime soon. No. and the government's going to be plenty busy defending kabul you know if they eventually they'll lose kandahar so if they did do something they're going to go after the city they don't you know they give crap about panjway um, and you know, speaking of Kandahar City, I mean, I think we're looking at the fall of that within the next month or two. Yeah, um, you know, and I mean, they've pushed into the city before, so I'm not going to read too much into the fact that they're in there right now. Um, it's all kind of depends on whether they can push them back or whether they try to to push for, if they take the air. Um, yeah, if they take the airfield, it's over. But Kandahar, it's this is ethnic Pashtun land like there's there's no way the Afghan government is going to waste too much of their resources trying to hold this area it's yeah yeah they're going to reconsolidate in Kabul and then try to put up a fight there and I'm not even sure how well they're gonna be able to do that yeah I mean, who knows and I mean it's interesting to see how how quickly they've crumbled it's it's showed very very blatantly how much they depended on us <laughs> you know even even when they were at their best they still depended on us so much that it's uh, i just don't see i don't see them able to stand their ground i just i don't think that's going to happen when the issue is logistics you know and this is i know you know can't bullets don't fly without supply it's <laughs> but yeah you know, one of the strengths of, of the of the United States military isn't really that we have the greatest fighting force in the world. I mean, I think we're the coolest, but that's besides the point. You know, it's that we can put a brigade on the ground in 72 hours anywhere in the world. It's that we can supply that brigade indefinitely with bullets, food, water, medical supplies. Afghanistan yeah. can't do that. They can't I even... Mean, I mean, the, the soldiers in the bases in most Afghanistan, they don't even subside off of their own supplies they go into the local areas and buy food in the local markets like yeah that's you can't win a war that way there's like logistically you have to have those supply chains that don't have it and they can't they won't add the only way they can do it is if they're centrally located in one place kabul and then maybe they can pull it off yeah yeah but i just uh I, i'd like to know how many how many pogues are there for every infantryman <laughs> like, <laughs> like 10 to one thousand thousand to one easily really Oh, for sure. I mean, it's probably what a hundred thousand infantrymen. We have them, so you know, ten to one. We'll call it ten to one. Yeah, maybe it's ten, maybe ten or twenty to one, or something like that. But what? Are, what are the numbers? Oh, that, that's interesting. I've never really like thought 60, about it. Like sixty to a hundred thousand infantrymen. In really? 
No, that can't be right. That's too many. That's way too many. Yeah, I mean, it's like like thirty, probably thirty or forty. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So. Oh, Jason Weldon Parsons says uh, I would suspect Sarah Post a prison in uh, in on their objective list in the near future. That's what they were going after in the city this morning. Oh, okay. they were pushing towards the prison. They, they might have it right now. <laughs> they're they're probably duking it out. Well, uh, it's what two o'clock in the morning there. Maybe not. In the morning, they'll wake up and get the jihad on. Go, go, take over the prison. Well, I mean, they they're fighting at night. I mean, they've captured enough yeah. pairs of uh, PVS sevens, PVS fourteens to to retake the night on both sides. So, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, they would. Yeah. They never mess with us at night. I know other areas. Obviously, it's a different story. Like I get hit at night all the time, but we never got hit at night. I don't think I ever remember. I only remember one gunfight at night and it wasn't even us it was the ana and they got when the a maybe it's alp they got ambushed in the bazaar and oh, the taliban yeah. fucked those dudes up and they killed like four of them yeah and we were out there on qrf and i just remember walking around under nods looking down those alleyways and stuff and i'm like this would suck like i felt for the dudes in iraq having to <laughs> get there and do it at night it's like that sucks man that urban environment at night under nods no thanks yeah so anyways. but anyways yeah so that's tangent yeah um. Yeah, uh, Jason's mentioned they tunneled into the prison in 2010. They did. There's actually been, I believe, there's been at least two other breakouts of that prison in Kandahar City. Like historically, they have been terrible about protecting that, yeah. and that's where they keep like the hardest criminals in the cell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyone who served in Afghanistan knows if you arrest somebody, the chances are within 48 hours they're going to get out. So if they actually stayed in a prison for an extended period of time, man, they must be some bad dudes yeah <laughs> yeah if they buried him in a hole instead of letting them go back to build 90s again in a couple weeks, a couple months um so i mean we we didn't want this thing to go too terribly long we've gone almost 40 minutes but the thing that i really want to keep coming back to was you know what our place in all of this as veterans of the war in panjway and kandahar um, some of those listening, you did have leadership positions and you did have policy making. Um, so, you know, maybe well, actually, I don't think anybody listening to this was unless your name is, you know, has four stars in front of it or used to, <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, kind of sound off in the chat and then I'll ask Luke just kind of like, what, what do you see as our, our role in history here? Like how, how is this going to be viewed? What, how should we look at it ourselves? I mean, there'll be a lot of ways that it's seen um, politically. I think it'll be seen as a failure. Um, tactically, the first year will be seen as a brilliant textbook example of a special operations campaign. Um, but yeah, I think politically it will be seen as a failure. I think um, for us on the individual personal level, it, it's just going to have to be a chapter, right? I mean, that's something that I've always advocated. Don't let that time there dominate your existence. It, it was a part of your life, that 9 to 12 to 15 months you spent in Panjway. Uh, it, it was a part of your life. It's not the only thing that's going on in your life. And so realize that. Close the book on that chapter. Every once in a while, crack it open, read it. Have a good laugh, have a good cry, whatever. But move on, you know, and just recognize it for what it actually is, which is just a few months of your life that was foundational and important but not dictating yeah and then that's a really good way to look at it and 
you know, Chance Burles is in the chat. Shout out to him. He's a good friend of ours. Um, you know, and when we talked to him on his podcast, we talked about how it gives you tools going forward, how your experience in Panjway gives you things like resilience or gives you coping strategies or give you mental strength and fortitude and confidence, all these things that you can use later in your life. And I think that's what the relevance of these of these experiences are. You're whether you did one tour in Afghanistan or you did twelve, you you pulled something from each of those experiences. And there's not a whole lot of know, this is really hypocritical for a podcast that's been dwelling on this for eight months now. There's no need to dwell on that experience. Mm-hmm. You know, take what you did from it, take your memories, take the good things, take the positive experiences, and then move forward with your life and you know, the fall of Panjway shouldn't be the fall of your mental health or it shouldn't yeah. be the fall of your stability. You know, it was never your responsibility to keep it from falling in the first place. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um yeah, well, I had a point. I lost it. I'll come back to me later. <laughs> but what was I gonna say? Oh well, dead air. Doesn't matter. Nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of just the, the way to take it going forward is, you know, you did, you did what you were supposed to do that. And, you know, Perez, I love you, buddy. <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. That's what that, yeah. <laughs> that should have been helping last stream and just said, it is what it is. See you later. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, now to those that are listening that want to try to help out for the last that we can. And the last thing I think that we can really help out with is trying to get these interpreters back kind of come full circle. Um, I will post in the comments, actually probably just edit the post and add it to the uh, uh, description, but there are two organizations that you can contact with questions about how to get an interpreter out of the country. First is no one left behind. That's an American organization nonprofit that is, helping with the SIV, the special immigrant visa process for American uh, interpreters to help with American forces. I do not know exactly what the, the plan is for forces being evacuated out of the country by the United States government. I I'm not in the government. I don't have any of the information. I just know that it is going to be happening. I don't know if you have to be in the SIV process. I don't know if you have to just prove that you were once an interpreter and if they're going to sort it out later down the road, I don't know. What I do know is that the best chance that you have for being picked up or finding your way on one of those flights is to start that process. Someone needs to be tracking your name. If you're an interpreter and you're still in your village and you've never applied for a visa and you haven't done anything at all, there's a very small chance someone's going to come rescue you. You know, pretty much zero. You're going to have to go out and initiate the process um, to, to get that going along. So no one left. I think it's uh, no one.org. I'll post it in the, the comments. Um, the other one is a Canadian organization and the website's too long for me to say. Um, they are actively uh, requesting that interpreters that serve with Canadian forces register with this website, fill in your email address, and they're going to send you a form. It's an intake form because they're trying to compile a list of names uh, and numbers so that they can advocate for some sort of humanitarian mission. None of these are promises. But if you know somebody that's trying to get out of the country, those are the two resources to send them to. And we have limited time. We're talking weeks, maybe even days before, te- before communications in the country goes dark. Um, so this the last thing that we can do for the people of Afghanistan is to try and get as many of them out right now as we can. Yep, for sure. And, um, you know, just 
keep trying. If you if you if you're a terp and you're in that position, just try as hard as you can. And you know, well, we you're the veterans that you know fought alongside you guys and seen you get killed, and wounded, and get your noodles rocked by IEDs and things like that. We open arms. And uh, you know, if you ever find yourself in the U.S., reach out to the guys that you were there with. You know, get on Facebook, reach out to us. We can try to put you in touch with somebody, and you know do the best that we can for you in return for the, for the great sacrifices that you guys made for us. So, um, on the topic of positive, I regained my thought. <laughs> and I think this is where we'll end it is <clears throat> we've really been striving to dig the positive out of this and season two, the recording, we were basically done recording episodes, but I think season three, if I do it, I'm exhausted. <laughs> We're doing a season three. Yeah, we're doing a season three. Um, I think the theme is going to be positive. You know, I think season one was what was the first season's theme. I mean, it was pretty much just Spurwingar. Spurwingar. Yeah. Season two, the theme was kind of like everybody's experience, multi like every person, every possible angle on the experience. Season three is going to be what's the positive. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's that's. So focus on so to mine out of the memories and mine out of that chapter in the book. You know, and, and going forward, I mean, we have a few interviews left for two and then obviously three, you know, every interview we do from this point on is now looking back at a war that is finally over. Mm-hmm. Um, for now, at least, you know, yeah. um, so it's going to be a different perspective. I mean, it's how many times during the podcast have we joked about, oh my gosh, we're still there. Now we're not. Yeah. Uh, so it, it changes things. Uh, and it is one thing to mentally prepare for. And it's another thing to watch it happen live on TV or to watch it live there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I understand why people are trying to get over the hurdle here. But yeah, I think you're right. We need to. It, it's hard. It's going to be hard for a lot of people to find the positive. But as we get further distance from the from the collapse, yeah, it's going to be easier to find some of those positive. And that's all we can do. We, as much as I'd love to hop in an Apache and throw Luke in the front seat and fly on <laughs> over to Sparwangar and take it back for a day, I mean, it'd be fun. It would be fun as long as I'm three thousand feet in the air in Apache and they haven't like magically got some kind of anti aircraft weapon. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they do. It's just going to be a long ride down um, or a short ride down, I guess. But yeah, for anyway, sure. Like I said, as, as much as it sounds cool to be able to be like, I want to go back and fix it, it's over. It's out it's of done. our hands. It was always out of our hands, really. Yeah. So uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Um, I hope uh, I'm going to answer that question. Andrew Brown, CAF is closed down. Like, there are no Americans at CAF. CAF is, has been turned over. Um, there are no Americans at Kandahar Airfield anymore. Can't wait to see the Taliban posing in front of TGIF. Right. With their milkshakes. <laughs> their Nathan's hot dogs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with their uh, spring break Kandahar, spring break, Kandahar t-shirts. That'd be great. If they do it, uh, man. That'd be so funny. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for tuning in. I hope that some of what we talked about was helpful to people or informative to people or at some point we just felt it was appropriate for us to talk about it and do it in a timely manner. So indeed. Uh, Luke got anything else? Sorry, I'm choppy and incoherent this evening. I'm tired. Still a little hungover. <laughs> All right. Hungover at his in-laws house. That's what I'm here. <laughs> nah. Um 
Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in next time. Yep. Till next time.